This question is just ever present in our election campaigns. I'm not sure it's quite so prominent elsewhere. And maybe this time around, it might prove a bit less powerful as issues like climate change and even amazingly foreign policy are supposedly wielding quite some influence. But there's a sense that the hip pocket nerve can never be overlooked as an emotional tool when people are standing there quietly in their own ballot box, maybe implicitly factoring in both those low unemployment rates and those looming interest rate rises. Inevitably, comparisons are made between the parties. Well, Saul Eslake, an economist well known to our own listeners, has been doing just that to really compare and contrast apple and apple, as it were, in a recent work published on the Pearls and Irritations website headlined, Which Party is the Better Economic Manager? Neither. <laughs> well, he joined me late yesterday in the studio to tell me more. Thank you for having me, Geraldine. It's nice to be with you. Look, is it via jobs or labour productivity or capital investment or inflation or the tax-take ratio from national revenue? I mean, how do we judge this question appropriately? It is a difficult question to judge fairly. Um, On some measures of economic performance, the coalition has historically done better than Labor. On others, Labor has done better than the coalition. The point that I make is, first, that as they say in the fine print in the product disclosure statements that come with investment products, past performance is no guarantee of future returns. <laughs> and I would say that just because one party or the other had on average over the past 30 or 50 years done better on some economic indicator than the other party is no guarantee that they will continue to do better on that or other economic indicators than the alternative. But second, When you take account of other things that were happening at the time that one party or another was running the country, there is almost nothing to choose in terms of economic performance. So, for example, just to run through some fairly simple numbers, if you take the entire period going back to the election of the Whitlam government in 1972, which gives you a neat 50 years, then economic growth, as measured by real GDP, has averaged 2.7% under both Labor and the coalition. If you abstract from differences in population growth and look at what economists call per capita real GDP growth, then the coalition's done slightly better with per capita growth averaging 1.5 under them compared with 1.1% per annum under Labor. On the other hand, if you look at employment growth as a measure of economic performance, then employment has grown slightly faster under Labor governments over the last 50 years, 1.6% per annum as opposed to 1.4% under the coalition. Where the coalition could claim to have better outcomes is with regard to inflation. Inflation has averaged 3.7% per annum under coalition governments over the last 50 years, which is 2.1 percentage points less than the 5.8% average for inflation under Labor governments. And partly for that reason, interest rates have, as John Howard often used to say, been lower under coalition governments than under Labor governments over the last 50 years. The cash rate, that's the Reserve Bank's cash rate, has averaged just under 5.9% under coalition governments and 7.4% under Labor governments. But in 
asking whether that reflects things that the coalition government has done when they've been in office as opposed to things that Labour governments have done when they've been in office. You also have to look at what's been happening in the global environment. Mm. And, for example, the coalition just happens to have been in office, especially under the Howard government and the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments during periods when inflation and interest rates were falling all around the world. Uh, By contrast, the Rudd-Gillard government happened to be in office during the global financial crisis when almost every economy experienced a recession and Australia was actually one of the very few in the developed world which didn't. And when you take into account those factors, my view is that neither side of politics can really credibly claim to have been better economic managers than the other. And even if they could that wouldn't necessarily provide a cast-iron guarantee that they would continue to be better managers if they win the next election than the other mob would have been. Okay, now, all right, that's a very interesting overview. Uh, I'm going to quote you the uh, very respected American economist, Paul Krugman, his line, a country's ability to improve its standard of living over time depends almost entirely on its ability to raise its output per worker. And this is the whole vexed issue of labour productivity. Now, I don't think... I think you've mentioned that. How, what about that as a, as a measure? Well, that's right. Paul Krogman also famously said that productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. And that's mm. one of uh, his most favourite, famous bon mots. Um, when you look at productivity, uh, you can only do that over a shorter period. You can't go back to uh, 1972 and to include the Whitlam and Fraser governments. But if we go back to the early 1980s, that is to the period beginning with the Hawke government, labour productivity growth has averaged 1.5% under the two or three labour governments we've had, Hawke, Keating and Rudd Gillard. And under coalition governments, that is the Howard government, and the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison governments, Mm. labour productivity growth has risen by 1.4% per annum on average. So uh, a very marginal uh, result favouring labour over the coalition, but frankly, you wouldn't put much store by 0.1 of a percentage point per annum difference over a period that's um, getting on for 40 years. Seeing we're talking about inflation, I'm speaking to you uh, in the week that that amazing, I think, 9.1% inflation figure in the UK was released, um, which was, I think, a bit of a shock. Do you think that Australia is going to suffer that sort of thing? I know Philip Lowe, the head of the Reserve, thinks it won't be as bad in the Asian region where we do, you know, most of our trade. What do you think? No, I don't think inflation will rise to as high as it already has in the UK. In fact, the Bank of England has forecast that British inflation will peak at somewhere close to 10% later this year, whereas our Reserve Bank is saying it expects our headline inflation rate to peak at about 6. One key difference is that energy prices have risen much more in the UK and in other parts of Europe than they are ever likely to in Australia, in part because Europe, including the UK, has become so dependent on natural gas as a source of electricity generation and gas prices have gone up dramatically. I mean, it's perhaps worth pointing out that at the beginning of April this year, that is just about six or seven weeks ago, regulated household energy bills went up 
by more than 50%. That's an increase of around £700 per household, or about $1,400. And on the very same day, the British version of the Medicare levy, what they call national insurance contributions, went up by two percentage points. And the British public is being told that household energy bills will rise by another 40% in October, uh, based on what's happening to wholesale natural gas and other electricity inputs uh, as of today. Now, we're not seeing anything like that in in Australia. You don't think we will? Uh, No, I don't think we will. I mean, who knows uh, to what extent the conflict that's in Ukraine might broaden out into something that is much more serious in its own right and has more serious consequences for the price of food and energy and other things that would have some impact here. But as things stand, I think the inflation outlook for Europe is considerably worse than the inflation outlook for Australia or, for that matter, for the United States and certainly for any other countries in our own time zone. I mean, if you take China, for example, as the biggest economy in our part of the world, although they've had significant upstream price pressures on um, raw materials and and so forth. In fact, the most recent reading on inflation in China was uh, about 2%, uh, and what they call core inflation, abstracting from movements in food and household energy prices, it was just Mm. 0.9%. Other Asian economies have seen inflation move up, for example, in Korea, uh, where the Bank of Korea has raised interest rates four times since uh, the middle of last year. Uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan have raised their interest rates in part because inflation has been going up. And just last week, uh, the the Malaysian central bank became the first central bank in Southeast Asia to lift rates and they won't be the last one. All right, then. Thank you very much indeed, Saul Eslake, uh, for that uh, lovely set of comparisons. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on the program again, Geraldine. It's been a pleasure. And Saul Eslake's piece um, about uh, whom is the better economic manager, neither, is in the Pearls and Irritations website, and that was published on April the 21st. So you might like to um, you might like to have a look at that.